Now a man named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogues, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross into Achaia, his brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. May God's word unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. May be seated. Thanks, Joyce. Thanks, Seth. Well, good morning. morning. Great to see you all. Uh, My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our teaching team. And especially if you're newer uh, to our church this summer, uh, I'm Luke. And uh, sometimes uh, if you're new, I'd especially like to meet you. So uh, I'll be probably in the front left of the room today after. If you would like to say hello, I'd I'd love to be able to greet you personally. Um, I want to bring you greetings from Restoration Church in Prescott. That's where I had the privilege of preaching last week. Uh, Restoration is a church that actually you all, whether you knew it or not, are part of helping get started. It's a, it's a fairly new church. It launched in January, and it's just about a block from the main kind of courthouse in Prescott. Uh, there on Montezuma Street, Restoration Church. Uh, one of the pastors there is Landon Myers, who did a church planning residency with us. He spent most of 2016 uh, with us and our staff and staying at my home and just spending time driving down almost every week uh, to be able to just experience what God was doing here. He preached here one time, perhaps you were here for that. Um, But they've started and they're off to a great start. They've got a couple hundred people. Uh, They've got a really cool space there. And um, anyway, so it's just really satisfying to kind of have heard about the dream that they had. And then um, for you to know that every time you give, actually a, a portion of what you give goes to help support that new church. And so, uh, really cool, really cool. So, um, as we look at the end of Acts chapter 18, I've been thinking about this podcast that I've been listening to, and I don't know if you all are into podcasts or not. I am kind of an auditory learner. I love listening to podcasts and learning what I can. And one of the podcasts that I have fallen in love with this summer is called How I Built This. I actually mentioned it a couple weeks ago, but I'll mention it again. I'm not getting paid for this. I just really like it. Um, It's called How I Built This. And uh, what it is, is it's basically interviews with entrepreneurs and innovators and people that have helped start movements or companies or businesses or organizations. And they really talk, they talk for about a half hour about how they built it and how the idea came and how they got funding and how they got started and how they did all that stuff. And it's absolutely fascinating. You can listen to uh, the guy who founded Southwest Airlines. You can uh, listen to the guy who uh, founded Five Guys, the hamburger chain. That's really an interesting one. There's a woman who started Aiden and Nene. And if you're one of those new moms Seth was talking about, maybe you know Aiden and Nene. They have those muslin soft blankets that everybody loves. Uh, They're tremendous. You can hear her tell her story. And you can hear uh, Sarah Blakely, the one who started Spanx. That's a fun one. That's actually a really, really good one. And it's interesting because as as I listen to all these different stories, I listened this week to to the guy that started Sam Adams, uh, the beer that really got the whole craft brewery thing going in the United States, right? You listen to all these different things and, and it's interesting because I'm inspired not by the specifics of each person's story, 
but by the common ingredients that I hear in all the different stories, right? So I don't listen to the founder of Southwest Airlines and think, okay, as a leader, I need to lead exactly like Herb Kelher did. I don't think that. I don't listen to the story about five guys and go, okay, I need to, as a leader, lead my church like a hamburger shop, right? Like, I don't, I'm not thinking that. That's not even my primary reason for listening. I just find it interesting. But I am inspired as a leader and as somebody that helps kind of get things started with the common ingredients that each of these stories seem to have in common, right? Because you're not going to necessarily imitate each one of these people, but you might go, okay, there's some, there's some common threads here. Like there's a thread, if you listen to these, where these entrepreneurs are focused on let's do it right. Let's not do it the fastest or the cheapest or the um, kind of most glitzy way. Let's just do it the right way. You kind of hear that thread go throughout it. You hear a lot of courage and opposition. A lot of people that said, that's a crazy idea. You shouldn't do it. I don't know if that's a good idea. And a lot of people that kind of push through that. You hear resiliency. You hear a focus on small steps. You know, rather than let's create this airline that is going to just take over the world, let's just do a few small things. Well, right? So you get these common ingredients. And it strikes me as we go through Acts that we hit all these different sort of case studies of how the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys and other people interact with the gospel. And, and it strikes me that one of the things that we can get in danger of doing is in looking at any particular story and saying, oh, it has to be exactly like that. But rather, I think this provides us an opportunity to go, what are some of the common ingredients of spiritual growth that seem to be taking place all along the way throughout this book? This uh, story, this, this section of scripture today is actually a, a very good example of that. The portion that we just read a moment ago is about this fellow named Apollos. We'll look at his story in a minute. And we're also going to look at the beginning of Acts chapter 19. We're going to look at these fellows who were uh, disciples of John the Baptist, but apparently hadn't heard the full story about Jesus. And it's really interesting because a lot of times, as you, as you read the commentaries and things about this, everyone's trying to go, well, was Apollos a believer? Was he really a Christian before Priscilla and Aquila talked to him, or was he not, and then he became one, right? Like, what exact, where exactly was he, right? That's how people are kind of analyzing it. You get to this next story about these followers of John the Baptist, and people want to do the same thing. Well, well now, where exactly were they when they heard Paul? Had they crossed the line of faith or not? Or, and, and I actually don't think that that's that helpful. And in fact, you know what? Some of you who are parents, particularly parents of junior high, or high school kids, or grandparents of those kids, you're tempted to do the same thing. You're tempted to go, now where exactly is my seventh grader with Jesus? Wait, now, now have they crossed the line? Have they not? Because, because if they haven't, I need to get really serious, right? And, and, and I think perhaps it's a better approach to say, what are the ingredients of healthy growth? What are the ingredients of spiritual growth? What are the things that have to be in the soil in order for the plants to grow? Rather than kind of uh, analyzing the plants. You know, when you, when you do an autopsy of something, it's dead. You can analyze it to death. And instead, I think we should just say, what, what are some common ingredients? So that's what we're going to look at today. If you're taking notes in your program, you'll see that the title there was Planting the Gospel, and I changed it. That's not what it is anymore. We're not covering that portion of scripture anymore. I changed it. And I can. I... And I'm preaching next week, so I didn't screw anyone else up, right, that's following me. So we're doing it different today. We're doing a little shorter passage, and, and I'm giving it the title, Five Ingredients of Growth. 
Five ingredients of growth. That's what we're going to look at here in these stories this morning. Before we dive into what those five ingredients are exactly, let's just make sure we understand uh, this story. So it begins in verse 24. The context of this is the Apostle Paul is on what you might consider his third missionary journey. Uh, he had, he's gone through the Mediterranean Rim starting churches, then he went back um, helping strengthen the churches he'd started and starting some more, and now he's going back again, kind of doing that same process. Um, but it's interesting because in this first portion of, uh, that we're going to look at, this end of Acts 18, Paul isn't actually even mentioned. There's sort of a sidebar here about what's going on besides Paul. And I think that's kind of neat that the whole thing doesn't revolve just around this one particular leader. And uh, we're introduced in verse 24 to a man named Apollos. Apollos uh, is described as a native of Alexandria. Alexandria was a very uh, well-educated, there's this huge, incredible library from the ancient world that was there, lots of learning, lots of study, lots of academia. He's a native of, of Alexandria, and he came to Ephesus. Ephesus is in Turkey, uh, modern-day Turkey today. He was an eloquent man. That word means learned, right? So he's well-informed. He's well-educated. Um, he's broadly educated, kind of a nice liberal arts education, so to speak. He's an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Hmm, you're like, this is good so far. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit... He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he's not just smart, competent, learned, eloquent. He's also fervent in spirit. He's excited. He's passionate. And he's able, it says, interestingly, in verse 25, he speaks and teaches accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. We'll talk more about the baptism of John in a moment, but just to understand this passage, the baptism of John was essentially John the Baptist who predated Jesus, and he came on the scene saying, hey, repent, turn around, uh, turn away from sin, the kingdom of God is coming, after me is coming someone that is spectacular, you're going to want to listen to him, turn around and repent, and so apparently Apollos knew something about that, but apparently he also knew something about Jesus, and, and we're not exactly clear, what did he know, what didn't he know, we're not sure. Verse 26 says, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. You'd think a person like that would be bold, right? He's really smart. He's really passionate. He spoke boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Priscilla and Aquila, by the way, those are a couple of tent makers, a husband and wife team that have gotten to know Paul. Uh, they've spent time with him. Paul has lived in their home. Uh, they've done lots of ministry together, and they're now in Ephesus. It says, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside probably into their home, and explain to him the way of God more accurately. Isn't that interesting? So verse 25 said, he spoke and taught accurately the things about Jesus, but Priscilla and Aquila hear him and go, I think he needs some more teaching. Now it's interesting, they don't confront him at the synagogue. Uh, they don't write a blog post or rant about him on social media. They, they say, hey, Apollos, could we have you over to our home? And they have him over, and they tell him, explain to him the way of God more accurately. Now, what did they tell him? We're not sure. Did it have to do more about the resurrection of Jesus? Maybe. Did it have to do more about the coming of the Spirit? Maybe. We, we're not, we're not, we don't know. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ 
was Jesus. So this is interesting. You have this powerhouse guy, Apollos, who interacts with these regular, ordinary Christians who help encourage and disciple and develop, help him grow. And then he's actually used in a tremendous way. He's going to travel throughout the rest of the Mediterranean Rim and do kind of what Paul's been doing. He's going to teach about Jesus. And so you see this kind of multiplication effort that happens. This isn't just about what happens through Paul, but it's about what happens through Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and now Apollos and now all the people that he's going to touch. This multiplication of the church, this growth that has happened in the church. So that's that first section. Now the second section, this is what we didn't read before, uh, says this, chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So Apollos is now headed out. He was in Ephesus. He left, and Paul has come back. Paul's come to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. Now, that word disciples, uh, commentators wrestle with this. Is this disciples of Jesus? Is this disciples of John? Uh, what do we do? Well, a lot of times when we have those kind of questions that don't make sense, do you know what you have to do when you're reading the Bible? Keep reading. Keep reading. Verse 2. So Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Remember, John was the one that had been telling everybody, hey, repent, repent, turn around. The kingdom of God is coming. Someone is coming after me. They, they go, that's what we heard about. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So in other words, let me tell you about Jesus, Paul says. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about 12 men in all. So you have here kind of a recreation of Pentecost. Right at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the people had heard about uh, the, the need to repent, but now they've been told about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they speak in other languages, and they prophesy, and this is a kind of recreation of that moment. Then the next paragraph describes what Paul did in the next few years. It says this in verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So he's just going day after day after day to the synagogue, talking to people, answering questions, raising questions, creating dialogue. Verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's what Christianity was known as, is the way, because Jesus had said that he was the way to the Father. People are speaking evil of the way before the congregation, so Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Hall of Tyrannus was this kind of public lecture hall. So Paul says, you know what, I'm going to quit going to the synagogue. Those people just want to get rid of me all the time. And so I'm going to set up shop. I'm going to just rent out a lecture hall. And Paul probably did this in the afternoons from probably 11 to 4 or 5 in the evening, 11 in the morning to 4 or 5 in the evening. And he would just spend time there and he would teach and he would talk and he would answer questions and he would raise questions and he would just do his ministry in the Hall of Tyrannus. Now look at verse 10. This continued... For two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. 
Now, that strikes me as interesting just because Paul, up to this point, he spends a little time here, a little time there, a little time there, and he moves on. He just keeps go, 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 go. And here he spends two years. And he, he's doing this, and Ephesus is such a major city that people are pouring through there, and, and Paul has spent so much time teaching in this place, and apparently it's such an attraction that the author, Luke, can say pretty much all the residents of Asia heard him at some point. They all traveled through there. They eventually heard him, right? This is like Hamilton was playing in Ephesus, and everybody went to see it, right? And so, so this incredible ministry that Paul has over that period of time. So, as I said, we could really spend a lot of time trying to analyze and break down, uh, well, what about Apollos? Was he really a Christian before he met Priscilla and Aquila? We'd say, well, what about these disciples of John the Baptist? Where were they exactly? We could do that. And you would all go, wow. Interesting. And uh, what's for lunch, Right? (laughs) And I would rather look at this and say, okay, are there some transferable themes here? Are there some things that we see in the growth that took place in Apollos and the growth that took place in these various people that we could kind of extract a bit and, and maybe apply into our lives and that we could grow? Because I, I assume that that's why you're here, right? You, you, there's a lot of other things you could do at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And I'm not going to list them all, but there's a lot. And so I assume that you're here. I assume that you have your kids here because you want to grow. You want them to grow. You, you, there's something about where you are in your spiritual life. Maybe you're thankful for it. Maybe you're happy with where it is, and you just want to keep it going. Maybe you're pretty discouraged. Maybe you're pretty unhappy. Maybe you need like a, a jolt today, and, and, I, and I hope that this can provide that. So what I want to look at from this story are the five ingredients of growth that we see in this particular passage. These are ingredients that I think could be part of any of our lives. And to the degree that these are in our lives, we'll be able to grow and to be able to be healthy. Maybe not instantly, maybe not right away, maybe not as fast as you possibly could, but you'll be able to plug away and over time you'll see growth. So here's the first one. First ingredient of growth is repentance. It's repentance. The, the common theme, really, in these two passages, which is why I decided to just cover these two together, is this whole idea of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the common thread that runs through both of these stories, through Apollos and through the disciples of John the Baptist. And uh, in verse 25 of chapter 18, it talks about how Apollos knew only the baptism of John. And then in chapters three and, or verses three and four of chapter 19, Paul had asked, into what then were you guys baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. So here's the thing. We don't know everything that Apollos and these other guys knew. We don't know all that they knew. We don't know all that they didn't know. But one thing we do know for sure that they knew was repentance. They had been instructed clearly, the one thing they absolutely had for sure was John, the Baptist. And John's message was repent, right? John was this kind of crazy. He'd wear like camel hair clothes. He'd eat locusts and honey. He was kind of this insane person in the wilderness. And everyone went out to hear him. And they would come out and they'd be like, uh, he'd be like, all right, it's going to be a pretty short sermon today. Repent! Let's pray. Right? And he'd just do like 50 services a day, and they were all three minutes long, and he would just do them. 
right? And, but everyone knew repentance, you gotta repent, you gotta turn from sin. The idea of repentance is there is this God who is holy, he has made you in his image, he has made you to enjoy him and to enjoy his good creation and enjoy one another and to live in harmony with yourself and with him and with others and with his good creation and we have broken that through sin. We've rebelled against God. Some of us very actively, others even fairly passively just saying, God, I don't really want much to do with you. But that rebellion is called sin. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and we've worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And, and the message of repentance is to say, hey, wake up. You're gonna answer to God. Turn from sin. Don't just make peace with sin. Don't be comfortable with sin, but, but try to get into the root of sin and, and dig it out. Now, now, here's the thing about it. Repentance. Repentance is like pulling weeds. Uh, my kids, you know, uh, occasionally I can coerce them to pull weeds. I, I, I give them two cents a weed. And uh, they get enough birthday money now that they're like, yeah, you can just do it. <laughs> So I maybe need to raise my, raise my prices. But, but you go out and you look at all the weeds that, that grow, and especially right now, they just grow so fast. And uh, I've had times where I've gone out and been like, gosh, I just pulled these, and they're back. Um, and usually when that happens, it's because how did I pull them? It's kind of sort of broke them off, right? Well, what do you know? They're back. And a lot of us, that's how we treat sin. We don't really dig into it very deep. You know, we, we, we do it, and then we feel bad. Oh, I shouldn't have bought that. Oh, I shouldn't have told that lie. Oh, I shouldn't have reacted with that kind of anger. And we feel bad about it. We feel convicted. We go, oh, that's wrong. I need to repent. We go, oh, I'm sorry I did that. And it's just like we just broke off a little bit. We didn't get down into it. And what do you know? It just pops right back up. And so repentance, if it's going to really root out sin, it needs to get deeper, we need to actually dig down and get some of the root of repentance. Now, one of the most famous preachers in uh, Western history is George Whitfield. He was an incredible evangelist, uh, traveled all across the eastern uh, part of the, of the early United, continental United States, sharing the gospel, preached to thousands and thousands of people, po powerful preacher. And he has a sermon called The Method of Grace. And in that sermon, he describes what you might say is like four layers of repentance. Four kind of ways we can dig down kind of underneath the surface. And, and the first layer of repentance is sorrow over a specific sin. So, right, you lied, uh, you, um, you, you slandered somebody, um, you felt angry or covetousness or jealous in your heart. There was an opportunity to do something good to someone and you didn't do it and you knew later, oh, I should have done that. Right, the first layer is to have sorrow over that specific sin, to say, oh, Lord, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry, but it goes deeper. And, and Whitfield says the next layer is, is not just sorrow over the specific sin, but sorrow over being a sinner. It's, it's not just enough, he says, to feel sorry about a specific sin you did, but to actually ad admit and acknowledge that you are a sinner. You, you, you sin because you're a sinner. There is a condition of your heart, Whitfield says, that is broken. This sinning thing is not just an occasional thing that you, an otherwise really great person, once in a while do. But in fact, it's the manifestation of a rebellious, sinful heart that needs to be changed at a heart level. 
So the second layer of repentance is, is to say, Lord, I, I, I'm sorry that I'm a sinner. The inclination of my heart is towards sin. We say it this way in our official doctrinal statement as a church is that we sin by nature and by choice. Choice is that top layer. Nature is that second layer. But he says, okay, go, go down one more layer and feel sorrow over the sinfulness of your best moments. That's getting a little deeper, right? What, what Whitfield is saying there is even at your very best, you often are doing things out of self-interest, out of a desire to look good to people, out of a desire to control, out of a desire to project some image. Uh, and even the very best things we do are still not enough to kind of earn God's favor. And Whitfield says we gotta repent of that. Even our good stuff is tainted by sin. And then the last layer, which he says is the plague of the Christian world that most people don't ever think or talk about, is what he calls unbelief. We need to have sorrow over our general unbelief. You might call this, he doesn't use this phrase, I, I added it, practical atheism. This general sense that we live most of our lives, like all the shows that we all watch on Netflix or TV or whatever. You ever watch those shows? How many of them even mention or reference or consider the idea that there's a God in the world? Never. And, and that's fine. I mean, I don't necessarily expect that from, the, 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 okay, whatever. But it's a problem if Christians live that way. If we live as though, hey, God doesn't see, God doesn't know, God doesn't care, that's just a general quality of unbelief. And Whitfield says, if you're gonna get into repentance, you've gotta dig at the root down into all four layers of repentance. So the first ingredient, maybe the thing that is keeping you stuck in your faith, maybe the thing that is making it where it's hard for you to grow and you feel like you've plateaued, is maybe you need to change the depth of your repentance. Don't just crack it off at the top, but get down into the root of the sin. So first ingredient is repentance. Second ingredient is community, is community. Notice that neither Apollos nor the disciples of John get it without help. They both need help, right? Apollos needs Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, these disciples of John need Paul. Um, th this, this all happens in community, right? The church, get this, the church is a people who not a place where. The church is a people who, not a place where, which means that this is not primarily, we don't primarily grow just by showing up to a place. We grow by being a people who, who live in community, who encourage another, who say, hey, let me have you over to my house so that I can encourage and bless you and point you toward Jesus, right? We need community. If you are new here and you want to get started in this process, I want to tell you about the, the environment, the best next step you should take, which is called Start Here. We do it just about every month. The next one is coming up in August, a couple Tuesdays in August, and there's information in your program about it. You should check that out. But that can be a first initial step into community because, listen, it doesn't matter how much you're trying to dig deep in repentance if you're alone if you're by yourself, if you don't have other people to encourage and say, come on, you can do it. Yeah, great job. If you don't have that, you're going to get stuck. So we need repentance. We need community. The third thing we need is teachability and humility. It's another way to say it. Teachability 
You see it in both cases, right? In both cases, Apollos and the disciples of John, they're both willing to hear. But it, to me, it's just most striking in the story of Apollos. Think about this. Apollos is from Alexandria, right? This is like Apollos is from Manhattan. He's from the, the most educated, the highest capacity. I mean, he's, he's, you know, the bee's knees. He's, he's from that background, Right? He is eloquent, he's learned, he's competent, he's clearly a great communicator because it said in verse 28, he's able to powerfully refute people in public explaining about Jesus. He's also passionate and zealous, right? I mean, this guy is, you know, Oxford scholar. He is like top of, top of the line. And, and, and he's willing to be corrected, to be taught, to be instructed by a couple of blue-collar tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla's often mentioned first, which shows you that he's even willing to be taught in that home personal setting by a woman. I mean, you would think that this, someone of this kind of elite status in this kind of patriarchal society would say, hey, 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 I, I don't need your help. Thank you. But he doesn't. He goes in and he's humble and he receives it. And he's even willing to be taught by a woman. Uh, this, this reminds me, um, I know this will make him feel uncomfortable, but this reminds me actually quite a bit of uh, Seth Trout. Some of you know Seth. He was just up here a moment ago. Uh, and, and he's been on our staff now for, gosh, it's been just under a year. And he's really smart. You spend a little bit of time with him and you're just like, this guy's smart. Or you're like, or I'm dumb. <laughs> and then you're like, or both. Like, okay, you know. But he's really smart. He just got a master's in divinity, which I'd like to tease him about. Well, you've mastered divinity. Way to go. Um, but he's like the person that went to all those classes and then remembers what, like I'm going through a master's degree program and if I, someone's like, I'm not, they say something, I'm like, oh yeah, it reminds me of something. And I have to like pull up my notes. I know I heard it, some, right? But he just remembers it. He's just smart. He's smarter than you. Every, you know. And here's what's been interesting. As a very smart, young, gifted leader, you would think that someone like that would walk into every environment and just kind of go, I got to figure it out. I know. I know what we need. And start poking holes in everything. And here's what's been fascinating. Because most of this year has been spent him taking people to lunch, taking people to coffee, getting to know people, all that sort of stuff. And whenever I'll ask, hey, how did it go with so-and-so? How, how did it go with so-and-so? He will almost always begin with telling me something he really appreciated or learned from them. And I go... Wow, and if you talk to him, he'd tell you that that doesn't come naturally. If, if, you, if the people who knew him in high school heard me say this, they'd be like, that's a different Seth than I know. Because when I knew him, he was just an arrogant jerk. <laughs> they would. I've, I talked to one of them last week. That's exactly what they told me. But listen, this is evidence of growth. And... It's, it's an ingredient of growth. Because anyone can go in and go, here's what's wrong with this, here's what needs to fix with that, here's your problem, here's your problem. And especially if you're smarter than the other people. Like, but to go in with humility, and to go in with teachability, 
You know, he's had people who have pastored large, large churches in our city say, hey, you should go plan it. When are you going to plan a church? You should plan a church. And he's going, I, I need to be in a place where I can just learn for a while. I, I love that. I love that. I want to be more like that. So we need repentance. We need community. We need teachability. Here's my question. Who are you unwilling to learn from? Who are you unwilling to learn from? Maybe it's because they're too old. Yeah, they don't know what it's like today. Okay, well you're unwilling to learn. You're unteachable. Maybe it's because they're too young. Maybe it's because they're too educated. You go, ah, I don't really trust those Ivy League people. Maybe they're too uneducated. Maybe they're too similar to you. Maybe they're too different from you. I don't know what it is, but who are you unwilling to learn from? Right, the mark of maturity is the ability to eat the fish and spit out the bones. But if you go, la, 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 I can't, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it, you will not grow. We need repentance, we need community, and we need to be teachable. Here's the fourth ingredient is we need the full gospel. We need the full gospel. See, those who are teachable need accurate teaching. See, this is, this is the problem. If you're teachable and you can't spit out the bones, you'll just absorb anything. Right, But, but the, those who are teachable also need to be taught well. And apparently, even Apollos, who was very teachable and very well learned, he, he had an ability to speak accurately the things of Jesus. He needed to speak more accurately. So he had to learn. These guys had to learn some things. And uh, it seems like what they needed to learn was the rest of the story. Right? At best, they knew about John the Baptist saying, hey, repent, there's someone coming. It seems like Apollos perhaps knew more. He knew about Jesus. He knew about some of the things maybe that Jesus taught, maybe the things that Jesus did. We don't know exactly, but it seems like perhaps in both cases, they needed, hey, here's the rest of the story. This wasn't just about repentance and John the Baptist. This is about not just what Jesus did or taught either. It's about what Jesus accomplished in his cross and his resurrection. See, you will not grow spiritually without the full gospel, the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and sending of his spirit. Otherwise, all your growth will just be self-help. It'll just be trying to do it in your own strength. It'll just be kind of the wisdom of man. You need the wisdom of God to break through here. So we need the full gospel. We need Jesus as Savior and Lord. Right? You'll hear that sometimes people, you'll hear an athlete say, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I really run fast because of him, right? You, you go, oh, cool, great, right? But what does that mean, Lord and Savior? What does Savior mean? Savior means rescuer. It means that we are brought to God not by our muscle, but by his sacrifice, by Jesus' sacrifice, by Jesus' rescue on the cross for us. Here's how A.W. Tozer uh, said it. He said, salvation was bought not by Jesus' fist, but by his nail-pierced hands, not by muscle, but by love, not by vengeance, but by forgiveness, not by force, but by sacrifice. Jesus Christ, our Lord, surrendered in order that he might win. He destroyed enemies by dying for them and conquering death by allowing death to conquer him. Jesus is our savior because of his death. Perhaps Apollos and these apostles of John needed to know, listen, all the repentance in the world, and it's great, it can't change you because at the heart level, what you need is a change of heart. And it's the death of Jesus on the cross that allows that heart change to happen, where Jesus dies in your place. 
But Jesus, listen, is not just your savior. He's also Lord. He reigns. He's king. He should be obeyed. He should be trusted. He should be followed. And he's Lord because of his resurrection, right? He's savior because of his death. He's Lord because he's resurrected. He's conquered death, right? And if someone rises from the dead, get this, if someone predicts their death and predicts their resurrection and then it happens exactly the way they told you, you should do whatever they say, <laughs> right? And that's, that's exactly what happened. Th this resurrection shows that Christ is not just Savior, he's Lord, he's King, he reigns. Here's how Yaroslav Pelikan says it. He says, if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. You gotta kind of think about that quote for a minute. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. I mean, if Christ is not risen, who cares about all this? Whatever. If he's still in the tomb, he's just another guy that had some far-fetched religious ideas and he's dead and none of this matters. But if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. He's Lord. He's King. Right? So perhaps they needed to know that, and you need to know that. You need to be continually in environments that help expose you to that full gospel message that Jesus died in your place, that he resurrected victoriously over Satan, sin, and death, and then next that he poured out his spirit who empowers you. It seems like that's what they needed to know because Paul is saying to these guys, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? No, what's the Holy Spirit? They haven't heard about it. Well, the Holy Spirit, get this, the Holy Spirit is part of the gospel message. The word gospel means good news. It is good news that God has sent his Holy Spirit to give you the power to do what you otherwise could not do. Right, the, the scripture describes being filled with the Spirit in the same way that, that a person that is filled with alcohol, that's drunk. Right, if a person is under the influence of alcohol, they're doing things they would not normally do. Maybe it's angry things. Maybe it's silly, ridiculous things but they're doing things that is not normal to them. Listen, to be filled with the Spirit is to do things that are not normal, which is why the fruit of the Spirit is described with words like love and joy and patience and self-control. And, and that's part of what even John the Baptist had predicted. I want to show you what Paul references here. Uh, in verse 4, he says, John the Baptist uh, baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was coming after him, that is Jesus. But, but the, full, the full context of this is in the book that Luke wrote earlier called Luke. And here's what it says. It says in Luke chapter three, as the people were in expectation, this is in the days of John the Baptist, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He says, listen, I can baptize you with water. I can symbolize that you want to die to sin, but I can't give you a new heart. I can't give you a new love. I can't give you a new patience. I can't give you a self-control that you otherwise can't and wouldn't have. I can't do that, but he can. 
And so Jesus pours out his spirit. And so if we're gonna be people who are gonna grow, we need this full gospel message. We need to have it heard. We need to hear it in our preaching. We need to read books that saturate us with it. We need to listen to friends and to people who will speak the truth of the gospel. There are lots of teachers and there are lots of places that will try to distract you and get you into all kinds of minutia that's very interesting, like the sermon I could have preached. But what we need is Jesus and his spirit. So if we're gonna grow, we need repentance, we need community, we need teachability, we need the full gospel, and then the last thing that we see in this passage is we need time. We need time. Look again at chapter 19, beginning in verse eight. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. You go, Paul didn't normally spend that much time. Well, that's because they usually ran him out of town faster. (laughs) But he wasn't in a hurry. He just was like there as long as they let him be there. Why? Because he knows it takes time. People don't change in an instant. People don't have their deeply held views about who God is from all this Old Testament background that these Jews in the synagogue would have had. They don't have that transform overnight. So he spends three months there And then in verse nine, he takes some disciples, he withdrew from from the synagogue and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. So not only are people coming in like to see Paul in the Hamilton kind of show and they're pouring through to hear this interesting stuff, (coughs) but he's also with these disciples and he's teaching them daily, day after day, day after day, day after day for two years. I think we underestimate the power of time. And I don't mean like how we spend our days. Of course we underestimate that. But just the the advantage that time is. Uh, One of my favorite comedians is uh, Jerry Seinfeld. And he has a little web show called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. It's pretty self-explanatory. And... um, I heard this interview with him where this person interviewing him said, hey, I I read, Jerry, that you just in the last few years have gotten into coffee. And he goes, yeah, I love coffee. It's great. And they talk about it. And the interviewer asks him, he says, well, how how did you wake up before coffee? And Jerry goes, time. You do eventually wake up. I thought that was funny. Don't overthink it. Like if you don't have, you just eventually wake up, like time. And I think it's like, how, how did you grow? How did you change? Time. Right, we overestimate what we can do in a day and we underestimate what we can do in a decade. But time is on our side. And if we will be patient enough with ourselves and patient enough with our children and patient enough with our spouses and patient enough with our parents and our friends and our loved ones, and especially if they're in these environments where these other ingredients are there, there's repentance, there's the full gospel, there's teachability, there's community. If those ingredients are there, over time, we change, we grow. It's good news. So let me just ask you, are you growing? Is your love increasing? Is your faith strengthening? 
is the amount of time that it takes from when you blow it to when you come to God in repentance shrinking. Are you growing? And, and if you're not, if you're stuck, I want you to look at this list and I want you to go, okay, I can't probably start five new things. But, but what's something here? What's an ingredient that maybe if it got back into my life, over time, I'd grow. Maybe it's repentance. Maybe you need to go deeper. Maybe it's community. Maybe you've been thinking if you just read enough books and listen to enough things and do kind of your thing by yourself and you've just viewed the church as a place where, not a people who, maybe you need community. Maybe it's been pride in your heart and you haven't been teachable and there's been people you've been unwilling to listen to. They've been trying to tell you, but you just won't hear them. Or maybe you just have kind of taken for granted or not exposed yourself to good, sound teaching about the gospel. Or maybe you just are being impatient. Take a breath. Be encouraged. This takes time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the ingredients of growth that we see in this passage. I pray that you would allow us to be faithful, to be obedient, to be patient, so that we could grow in our love for you and our love for others. God, thank you for the models that we have all around us, even in this church, of this kind of stuff. And I pray that, um, that we would most of all look to Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, who sent his spirit so that we could be not just nicer people, but new people. We pray in his name. Amen.